We're starting a new series this morning through the book of Ruth. So there's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. If you want to grab one, we're going to start in Ruth 1. And uh, you'll notice that this slide uh, says Advent 2015. And you might be saying, Advent? It's not Advent yet. And you're right. But you know what I decided? If the consumer culture can co-op Christmas, we can take it back. And if you go into the stores right now and you see Christmas everywhere, we're starting Christmas now. So Advent, starting early at Bay Marin, we're going to celebrate the Christ through the lens of this ancient story in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is in the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. It's the eighth book in the Bible. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy which is the Torah or the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. And then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So we're in Ruth. And we're going to take a look at this amazing story of a courageous woman in the midst of hardship. Uh, So Ruth chapter 1. And we're only going to look at the first five verses. And the reason we're only going to look at the first five verses is because Ruth is such an amazing story that these first five verses are fairly easy to read over quickly and jump to the main part of the story. But there's so much going on in the backstory that is important for us to understand in order to more fully understand what's going on throughout the entire book of Ruth. So we're going to take our time this morning looking at these first Five verses. Verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled. Now, I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Israelite hearer of this story. Someone is writing this story apparently at a time after the judges, because the author says, In the days when the judges ruled. And so the hearers or readers of this story are hearkening back to a time when the judges ruled. Now, if you ever want some fun reading, read through the book of Judges. It's the book just before Ruth. Uh, It is filled with violence, blood, complete disregard for other humans, complete disregard for God's heart for the Israelite people. The Israelite people, since the inception of the nation of Israel through Abraham, were called to be a light in a dark world. They they were called to be a blessed nation in order to bless others. And in the midst of a dark world, they too are living in darkness. Uh, Notice this text from Judges. It's twice in Judges we see it. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what was right in their eyes was not necessarily right. And so this people that God has called to look different than the culture around them does not look much different. They are living in many ways just like everyone else. In the midst of it, we're told 
that in the days the judges ruled, there's this story. In the midst of a culture of violence and darkness and disobedience to God, there is a story about a community that looks different in the midst of the culture. I wonder what it looks like for us to look different in our culture. I wonder what it looks like for us to be a community of Christ followers who choose to forgive in a culture that doesn't forgive. I wonder what it looks like for us to be a people who don't hold grudges in the midst of a culture that holds grudges. Just take one look at the news, especially the political landscape of our day right now. And there is a lack of love, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of holding, or a a hold of grudges in our culture. I wonder what it looks like for us to look different to be a people of forgiveness, to be a people of love, to be a people of kindness. In the midst of a culture of violence and darkness, we're told about a story where there's a community of people who look different, who are living into what Micah says in Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? What does it look like to love mercy in a culture of pride and arrogance and entitlement? What does it look like to walk humbly with God? The hearers of this first story, they they hear that this is a story that takes place in the time of the judges. They're thinking, oh man, that was a dark season in our history. We don't want to go back to that. Not only was it a time when the judges ruled, but there was a famine in the land. So you're hearing this story and you're thinking, oh man, this is the time of the judges. Not only that, there's a famine. This is not good. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, again, we're in the shoes of these early listeners. You have to understand that for folks in ancient Israel, this land has been given to them by God. There is very little that is more important to these people than their land and being rooted in their land. We in the Bay Area, we live in a very transient culture. It's not unusual for folks to leave everything somewhere and move here. It's not unusual for folks here to leave everything and move elsewhere. This was not the case in the ancient world. Once you had established a homeland, you stayed, and, it, and your land stayed in your family for generations and generations and generations. These people choose to move. The famine must have been very, very severe for them to choose 
to move in the midst of it. There must have been a real fear that they would not survive the famine. And so they move. And they move to Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Molon and Kilion. Now, you don't hear it so much in the English, but Molon and Kilion rhyme in the Hebrew. And we see this elsewhere uh, in Hebrew families where people name their kids something that rhymes. There's a couple examples of it here. Uh, These are amazing names. Uz and Buzz. You thought Buzz Lightyear was unique? Nope, they had it way back in Genesis. Uh, Muppin and Huppin. Muppin and his brother Huppin. So, you know, if you have kids in the future or if your kids give you grandkids, you might want to suggest Muppin. It's a great name, isn't it? Muppin. All right, well, that one was for free. Uh, They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, as a hearer of this story in the ancient world, you're thinking time of the judges, not good. Famine, not good. Moab, really not good. Why Moab. See, there is bad blood between Israel and Moab. Once upon a time, there was a prophet named Balaam, and and Balaam had a donkey that talked. The Bible is fascinating. I'm telling you, it is absolutely fascinating. This prophet Balaam, his donkey literally talked to him. Anyhow, The king of Moab hired Balaam to pronounce curses on the Israelite people. But every time he tried to curse the Israelite people, God changed the curse into a blessing. And so it didn't work. And so the king of Moab then decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to seduce all the Israelite men with Moabite women. And he did. And, And a bunch of Israelite men slept with Moabite women, and they started worshiping the Moabite god, And this was not good because Moses got angry and God got angry and it wasn't a pretty sight. So there's this history between Israel and Moab that is not good. So much so that, that it compelled Moses to write this in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Not even in the tenth generation. So this means... it. If you, uh, if you marry into the Moabite clan, you're not allowed to worship. And your descendants are not allowed to worship with Israel. This is very serious. They're excluded from worship. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram Nariam. Doesn't that sound like something from Lord of the Rings? Yeah. <laughs> They hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Nariam, to pronounce a curse on you. Next slide. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So they move to a place they're not supposed to move. 
Why did they move there? If I can have that map again. So you can see where Bethlehem is in Judah, just south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is in the hill country of Judea. It sits about 2,500 feet above sea level. Now, Moab is about 35 miles away on the other side of the Dead Sea. Bethlehem is about 15 miles from the Dead Sea. Bethlehem gets about 14 inches of rain per year. But if they don't get rain, they're in trouble because it can cause a drought, which we don't know anything about, uh, which can then cause a famine. At the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea only gets about an average of four inches of rain a year. It's only 15 miles away. But Bethlehem sits on the edge of the desert. And so it is a fertile area when it does rain, but when it doesn't, the desert can encroach upon Bethlehem. They sit at 2,500 feet. It is a 4,500-foot descent from Bethlehem to the Dead Sea. You say, how can it be 4,500 feet if Bethlehem is only at 2,500 feet? Because the Dead Sea is the lowest place on planet Earth. The surface of the Dead Sea is 2,000 feet below sea level. Well, why didn't they just move to the Dead Sea and use water there to produce crops? It's called the Dead Sea for a reason. 30% salt content in the Dead Sea. I've floated in it before. You literally float in the Dead Sea because there's so much salt. And so they couldn't move to the Dead Sea and use water from the Dead Sea because it's 30% salt. Average salt content in the ocean, 3%. So 10 times that amount in the Dead Sea. And so on a clear day, though, they could see across the Dead Sea, and perhaps what they saw is that over in Moab, it looked fertile. We don't know, but this is where they chose to move. And so they move to Moab. And so as you're listening to this story, you're thinking, can it get much worse for these people? Time of the Judges, famine, Moab, enemies. That's where they move. And so they move to Moab. Now, Elimelech, verse 3, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. You're listening to this story as an ancient listener, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, you are telling me a tragic, tragic tale. I'm thinking, can it get much worse when I hear Judges famine, Moab. Now you tell me her husband dies. Here's something you need to understand. In the ancient world, as a woman, you were considered a second-class citizen. It's, It's horrible, it's sad, but it's reality. In the ancient world, your capacity to survive and be protected in the ancient world was always tied to a man. When you're born into the ancient world as a little girl, your protection is tied to your father. When you get married, your protection is tied to your husband. When your husband dies, your protection is tied to your sons. And so as you're listening to this story, as an ancient listener, you're saying, okay, Judges, 
not good. Famine, not good. Moab, not good. Her husband dies. This is horrible. But she has her boys. She still has her boys. So there's still hope for Naomi. Verse 4. Her boys married Moabite women. Okay. You're listening to this as an ancient listener, and you're like, okay, I was with you until now. I was with you with this tragic tale until now, until you told me they married our enemies. How could they choose to marry Moabite women? This is unheard of. This is unacceptable. They should have moved back to Bethlehem. They should have found wives in Bethlehem. No, they married Moabite women. This is unheard of. And the Moabite women, their names were Orpah and the other Ruth. Now, Ruth is who this story is about. Uh, I had a great-grandmother named Ruth. You probably know someone or have at least heard of someone named Ruth, a number of Ruths in the world named after this Ruth. Uh, You would be hard-pressed to find a woman named Orpah, however. Interestingly enough, in 1954 in rural Mississippi, a teenage girl gave birth to a little baby girl and named her Orpah after the Orpah in the book of Ruth. Her family kept forgetting how to pronounce it. So she is known today as Oprah. Oprah was named after Orpah in the book of Ruth. That one's for free too. Uh, So after they lived there about 10 years, both Milan and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. These opening five verses are one of the most tragic tales in all of the scriptures. We see Naomi right now in a similar situation to Job. Only it could be argued that it's worse for Naomi than Job because Job was a man. And in his culture, he still had rights, he still had position, he still had privileges, and he still had land. Naomi's land back in Bethlehem is tied to her husband who's now dead. So then it becomes tied to her sons who are now dead. She has left everything. She is a foreigner in a famine with no husband and no sons. She has nothing. She is completely vulnerable, completely unprotected, with no hope for a good future. This is how the book of Ruth opens. It's horrible. It's a horrible, tragic tale that, as we move through this story, we'll start to see some amazing hope and beautiful scenes but I don't want us to rush past these opening verses because they are tragic and we should feel 
the full weight of them and how Naomi is feeling. She is left all alone. And she's lonely. She doesn't have her community. She doesn't have her friends and family back in Bethlehem to grieve with her, to be present with her, to mourn with her. She is alone in a foreign land. I simply want to ask you this morning, what is your famine? Where do you feel alone? As you sit with that question, I want us to begin to ponder another story about a family in the town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The bells are ringing. The light has come. (laughs) We planned that. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of Roman oppression, there is a longing within the Israelite people. There is a hunger for a rescuer to come. That There is a deep, deep longing for the ancient words of Isaiah to be fulfilled, that in the land of darkness, a light has shone. They are longing for it. But they are in a famine of their own. It's the oppression of Rome And it's even the oppression of their own religious leaders. And they are longing for food during a famine. They are longing for light in the darkness. And as we look forward to the season of Advent, we we look at that ancient longing and how it taps in to our own longing for light in the darkness, for food in the famine. But what is your famine? And do you believe that in the midst of it, a light has shone? Perhaps for you, you, you are in a season of life that is just thriving and everything's going great. I would simply invite you to ask, who do I know? Who is experiencing famine? Uh, Who in my life is experiencing famine? And how might I be food for them? How might I be light for them in the midst of their darkness, in the midst of their famine? Uh, This family 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, they felt the same fear for their lives that Elimelech and Naomi felt. And they, too, left Bethlehem. They went the other direction, to Egypt. They were foreigners in a foreign land, longing to return to everything they know and love. What does it look like to tap in 
to that longing. What if Mary and Joseph and Jesus had not been welcomed in Egypt? The Israelites had been told for generations to always welcome the foreigner, to be a place of refuge for the foreigner. What if they had not been welcomed in Egypt? We don't know what their experience was like there. We don't really fully know what Elimelech and Naomi's experience were like in Moab. We do know that they were foreigners. What is it like to be a foreigner? What does it look like to welcome the foreigner in our own midst? People who are far from their homeland. Into the darkness, a light has shone. We're going to leave Naomi and Ruth where they are in this moment of pain, of anguish, and yet with the longing for home and the longing for a light that shines in the darkness. God, thank you that you are not the author of suffering, you are not the author of pain, but you are present to us in it. And so I pray this morning, God, for, for those in our midst who are experiencing darkness, who are experiencing famine, that you would shine your light in and that you would make us a people of light. We thank you for the light of Jesus that shines in the darkness. Thank you that Jesus came among us into a world of darkness, into a world of violence, into a world of pain, to bring hope, to bring healing, to bring a new day. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As you go, in the midst of whatever famine or darkness you may be experiencing, may you experience the bread of life, that's Jesus. May you experience the light of life, that's Jesus. May you experience his hope, his healing, and his abundance. Grace and peace be yours. Amen. Amen.